This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Sidekick Campaigns. Vladislav Surkov. The Kingdom of East. And Roger Bacon. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. It turns out, beloved listeners, that after I finish talking, there's more stuff to do to make a podcast happen. You could knock me over with a feather, but apparently (laughs) there's files and compu signs and I don't even know what all kind of thing. Yes. And some of you have been noticing that if you've been doing a back catalog run, some people have been noticing that some episodes have been kind of vanishing and hopefully reappearing. And that's because we switched hosts. Right. We switched hosts. That's a thing. I absolutely know what that entails. (laughs) But as a result of that switch, as you all know, I mean, I don't have to explain file hosting. Um, as you all know, when you do that, sometimes something falls through the, let's call them the cracks. And episode 154 went away, possibly forever. No doubt somewhere out there, there's some sort of uh, Gene Hackman type who's got them all recorded and is tapping the uh, gla- his glasses with a pen. But clearance prevents him from letting us have his copy. So what we're doing is we're restoring, as I am given to understand, the good half of 154. Robin, is that a fair assessment? That, that's right. So the thing about 154 is there's two perennial topics, two classic topics, and also a Among My Many Hats, which is me talking about an out-of-print product for a now-defunct game line from a company that is out of business. <laughs> and then there's a politics hut. Sometimes your hats get left in the bus and then you never see them again. That's just how it happens. Yeah. And, so, and then there's a politics hut where we say, we don't have Rob Ford to talk about anymore, but 
oh, this clown Donald Trump, we can laugh at him for a while. This will be an amusing thing that will happen. So I, I think the Zephyrs and the Sprites, the Lares and the Panates of the uh, Internet have done us a favor by purposely disappearing this episode because the one half of it does not need to be resurrected in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> yeah, so so we're we're just doing the B, the good half, not the Zom, as exactly. we revenant it. And these segments begin with a trip into the gaming hut where Peter Frampton is come alive to welcome us. We got your shag carpet. We got your Doritos. We got your thumping miniatures. We got your rattling dice. Everything you want for the gaming hut. And, oh, good, Robin. Good. Doc Savage is in the gaming hut. He'll tell us what to do. That'll be great. We'll just sit here quietly and make eyes at Doc Savage and sometimes fight. Because yes. why not? Let's fight each other because Doc Savage will solve whatever the problem is. Right. That's our solution. Well, it's, it's mere banter. It's bickering. Bickering. It's, it's a, a amusing badinage. As, it's as by play, you can yes. call it. Because you are playing by Doc Savage, who is solving the problem. Right. Or, or Buffy, t- to name a, a more contemporary example. And so... The, or Doctor Who, a, to name an example that spans both of those. So, I guess there's two ways to go about this, and the Buffy role-playing game did it one way, which is that there's one person who plays that sort of pivot point, the most capable, most necessary to the plot character, and everybody else plays the sidekicks. Uh, and then there's uh, another version where everybody's a sidekick, and the main hero is an NPC who sort of sends you on missions and you know, shows up at the end to kind of uh, solve whatever problems you can't solve yourselves. And that that one is sort of more, you know, the Jimmy Olsen comics version of it, where presumably there are lots of adventures where, you know, Doc Savage or Batman or whoever it is, is center stage, but you're playing the ones where you guys do more and, and the main hero does less. So I guess that essentially the, the main question, I think, with sort of the Buffy model, which I think is the one that people will find more satisfying. Well, I I should ask you, do you think people prefer the Buffy model to the NPC model? I think if the voice on tape or the M or whoever sends you on your missions is not also the guy who could solve it himself if he would get off his Kryptonian butt, then you feel better about it. You don't mind getting a mission from an old retired admiral. He's like, well, I'm an old retired admiral. I can't be out Delta greening all day. You guys have to go do that. And you're like, well, that's fair. But if, if it's, you know, Sherlock Holmes or Batman or, or, you know, the sort of character, the hero that this example is about, then you do want to know, why aren't you fixing it if these time Romans are so important, Doctor Who, if that is your real name? And I don't think it is. Uh, I feel like you don't mind it if the assignment character isn't a hero hero, but if he is a hero hero, then I, I think there's maybe a little bit of psychological resentment. And even if everyone's nodded and agreed, yes, we will all play Jimmy Olsen and the newsboy Legion. At some point, they just say, we could solve this by touching your watch, Jimmy. That would literally get this problem fixed in a minute. And and why aren't you touching the watch becomes the question throughout the whole game. It hangs over everything. And it uh, mechanically doesn't work unless you've got a clever methodology by which all the players can enjoy playing Superman and fixing the problem, which some solo and sides games do but again then why were jimmy olsen and the newsboy legion necessary in the first place why wasn't this just collaborative superman the role-playing game and your problem is solved there so yeah i think that the buffy game is the one that's the model that is more 
satisfying also to people who want to emulate the the core property. I mean, no one who's like, great, a Batman game. I'll play Alfred and you'll play Robin and you'll play um, uh, Commissioner Gordon and right. we'll go out and solve crimes and eventually uh, Batman. Although the CW is now on its second Batman show without Batman in it. coming. Right. Up. Yeah. Well, that, again, this <laughs> see botchkoization comma the dire, but the emotionally satisfying thing in a role playing game, like I need to tell you, is different than the emotionally satisfying thing in watching a television show, even assuming for the sake of argument that Gotham or the next one are emotionally satisfying, which I would say eh, maybe not. So so I feel like we should talk about the Buffy model because that is the model that both has a really good game attached to it, the Buffy game, and solves that model in a couple of interesting ways or approaches it anyway. And then also I think it's the the one that people think of when they're thinking of we're gonna play you know, you know, we, we want to play the doctor and his companions. We don't want to play these dorks from unit who also have to fight a Santaran one day. Right. right. And so the first thing I guess is to just mostly kind of set aside the idea of character power parody. Mm -hmm. And you also have to set aside the idea that everybody, you know, has equal weight in the narrative. But I think especially these days, you know, if you're just sort of steeped in in F20, in that format, even there, you know that there are, depending on what level you're at, there's one character class that outshines the other. And what that class is changes over time uh, without ever being the druid. <laughs> Aww, <laughs> and, what if you summoned a bear, Robin? Yes. You're not thinking. Well, actually, summoning bears is, is, a, is a pretty good superpower. But then the, then you bec all become sidekicks to the bear. Which right. It's also fun, but a different kind of fun. Yeah. So yeah. if you're playing a game where you're all sidekicks to a bear, the thing is to no. So one thing is just go, well, yes, of course, our hero equivalent is very, very good at the one thing that that hero does, which is killing vampires. So Buffy is basically kind of the brick of that group, as it were. But everybody else needs other specialties. And you've got to all work together uh, to get your brick in the right place to fight the vampire. And uh, that's. You know, that's sort of basic to role playing. So it may be overthinking it a bit to, to even worry about this. I think the main concern actually is, is player attendance, right? So when the player who's been assigned the Buffy can't show up for three weeks, is that more fun? Because then all of the other character, the sidekicks all suddenly get to be equals and solve the problem without Buffy or does it feel like there's a giant hole in your game? Yeah, I think that the one player is missing problem, you know, it obviously it is a problem. And uh, have we talked about it? Maybe we have. But the one player is missing and their Buffy is more of, I think, an opportunity than a problem because you do then get a thing where, no, you have to solve it. We have to come up with a an in-game reason why Buffy can't come and stab all the vampires and you... Uh, Xander and Willow and Giles have to solve this problem yourself for once. And that can set up a, a fun challenge and be interesting and set up some character by play and give you a substrate of relationship to lean on. Even when you're role playing in the sessions where Buffy's player has come back from Colorado or wherever she went and you can go back to your regular Buffy type adventures. So I think that that in the context of this type of game is actually more fun and interesting than it is in a regular game where, oh, the paladin's not here. We can't do the necromancer adventure. Damn it. You know, right? Because yeah. the nature of Buffy specifically, and I would argue of a lot of these hero characters, is that they do face an ongoing world of threats. And it is not so much that Buffy is out, you know, killing hobgoblins to get money and uh, wealth. 
no, Buffy is out killing vampires to protect the good people of Sunnydale. And so, you know, if she's not there, you've still got to step up and kill vampires. And if she was super core to how we were going to kill this Nosferatu, then yeah, that's a bigger challenge. And that makes, I think, almost definitionally better, more interesting gaming. So are we going to then argue that you should give the Buffy to the character with the poorest attendance record? (laughs) Does that actually make the game better? I don't know if it makes the game better for Buffy to always be um, or to combat. I think that maybe that is spitting in the face of the gods a little too lustily. But I I think that it's not the the crippling problem that it that you might think it is just from the jump. I, I would give it to the sort of player that the other players like the best in game and it doesn't necessarily mean their best friend <laughs> without ever revealing yes yeah. the source that's why you assigned the buffy that well, way. the thing is if you've got a People game group and you've played with them for a year you know which one should get yes. to be buffy and it's everyone not the else person does. everybody likes most it's yeah. the person the player who is most plot forwarding player yeah who footnote also happens to be the one they all like yeah right exactly yeah no there's an absolutely objective methodology that turns out to exactly coincide with primitive monkey uh, tribal instinct. The uh, overlapping issue of command structure comes into play. So uh, the doctor is not ever commanding his companions to do things, except uh, his companions she are generally he always is yeah. and is the only one who really ever solves the problem. Uh, although, you know, different iterations of the show have tried to make the you know, the sidekicks more competent or necessary over the years. And so I think you still need uh, to solve the command structure problem the way you would when you're playing Star Trek, which is that when you're in planning mode, everybody kind of gets a share of the Buffy, right? That the, mm-hmm. you kind of discuss as players taking a step back, you know, what would Buffy eventually tell everybody to do, decide that as players, and then go back into character and and play out Buffy telling everybody what to do because, and that's also challenging because we talked about byplay and how much fun that is. But there's a point during planning sessions where playing your character too hard makes the planning worse. And I think that is accentuated in, in a thing where logically the super competent character, if they're also the mastermind. So it might, I guess another way to go at this is if you're not literally playing Buffy, Make sure that the, you know, the planner is not the the hero is make sure that everybody has a vital role and Superman or whoever it is relies on everybody else. So, you know, he's he's busy. He's in four different comics. He's going to show up and say, what's the plan? And then, you know, the rest of you will have planned what to do for him. Yeah. The other thing is that, you know, you have the situation that you can create because it's your game. And in Buffy, Buffy is in command. Sure. But. Giles is sort of in command of Buffy a little bit, and Willow has an emotional claim on Buffy. The other characters have emotional claims on Buffy to an extent. And then if you are playing a debased Buffy game and you have Spike, he's not under anyone's command, by golly. And so you don't have to set things up like a like a Marine Corps unit. You can set it up where, yeah, we all understand that Doc Savage is the best and we uh, want to do what he wants to do, but he's not, you know, the boss of us. We're, you know, we're, we've all got, you know, uh, contributions to make and, and ideas. And you can do that push pull depending, I think, on how much interpersonal story you want to get out of Buffy's not the boss of me, which of course does show up in several of the episodes. And if you, the group enjoy that kind of interpersonal drama where 
you know that you're role-playing not liking being commanded, but in the game, it has to happen because you got to stop these vampires. That creates dramatic tension. And if that's the kind of tension you like in your game, great. Um, I think that the worry about command structure in many cases is a worry that arises quite rationally when you're playing with teenage boys who are both excited by command structure and angry about agency loss in a way that maybe other sorts of players aren't is, is maybe my guess here. What do you think about that? I, I would just step back and say that uh, different group dynamics will determine how well that works. Right. Yeah. And if you've got a group where uh, there's a, a player who seeks dominance and the rest of the group is trying to pull back from their dominance, which is not the exclusive preserve of teenage boys, mm -hmm. you want to come up with something other than the Buffy thing, because that's going to go awry uh, no matter what, whether the dominant-seeking player is a sidekick, they're going to try and, you know, become the auxiliary Buffy, and if they're the Buffy, they're going to be insufferable. Right. So that that is a dynamic with that type of group that I think you want to avoid for this. The other thing I would say about making this work is you have to pay more attention to scenario design so that, you know, the standard scenario kind of assumes everybody kind of works together and it all comes out in the wash as to whose abilities matter. But here you really have to go, okay, I got to make sure that there's a pivotal scene for the hacker. I've got to make sure that there's something for the mastermind to do. I've got to make sure that they all contribute in a way and just go an extra little step to ask myself, is everybody get to do something for the Buffy and uh, is, is the Buffy, you know, dominating every single scene or does, or does, you know, she just get one big moment to, to shine, which spoiler is when she's staking a vampire. Right. And there's um some of the episodes of arrow actually managed to do that pretty well, where they had characters who were clearly not in green arrows level, but they had d degrees of competence that green arrow literally didn't have. And he needed, you know, Felicity to do the hacking or he needed, other characters to go and, and do things. And it wasn't just uh, sort of flash. Oh, and Flash's friends, uh, which is what the flash show more often is. And, and I feel like there's ways and means you can do that. And obviously if you're playing a, a classic model, Superman and Jimmy Olsen, then you really do need to come up with some sort, I think of at the very least, as you say, it's either collaborative decision-making about what Superman will do when he does show up or some sort of collaborative play of Superman, because you know, with great power, etc. Right. And, and so to make the Jimmy Olsen thing work, just very briefly, that is a game where all of the sidekicks have to earn enough points to make their Superman role. Mm -hmm. And they have to do things in order to activate the conditions under which uh, Superman shows up. And it has to be, you know, and you have to come up with a device other than, you know, literally the, the watch that Jimmy can hit at any time. Although Jimmy knows, you know, he can't, you know, Superman's busy. He doesn't right. want to be a jerk about it. Yeah, I mean, know. in the comics, he doesn't hit his watch, even though it would solve the problem. And it's because Jimmy, you know, has got his pride and he wants to show off in front of uh, Lana or whoever. And so he doesn't he doesn't want Superman solving all of his problems and getting him out of the soup. Yeah, as far as Jimmy's concerned, Superman's the sidekick. Exactly. Which is part of the fun of, of Jimmy Olsen as a character to bring this into an entirely different topic area, but maybe entirely you different know. topic area. That <laughs> means this segment is over. Oh, ho, ho. hit your watch. Dracula is not a novel. 
We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. The retinal scan that you had to undergo and the extensive background check and also the sense that someone has been listening in on you and that person listening might have a Russian accent tell you that we are once more in the tradecraft hut. But this could also be the elliptony hut, and it could also be the geopolitics hut, because uh, speaking of shadowy figures, I think it's time for us to look at the shadowiest of figures, uh, possibly the greatest real-life example of an actual esoterrorist. His moon is somewhat in, in eclipse at the moment, uh, but you never know, so we're going to talk about the cynic in velvet, the gray cardinal, Vladislav Surkov, formerly a top Putin advisor and the architect behind uh, what has been called postmodern authoritarianism. And he's quite the character. He started out in uh, metallurgy, and then he went to drama school. He got kicked out of drama school for fighting. <laughs> Well, like you a do. Too much drama there. And so as the Soviet Union was breaking up and, and the, the new slash old Russia was beginning to recoalesce, he jumped into the story and he's, uh, he's a character, Ken. Yes. And I guess we should say at some point that part of his weird esoterror is that he may be a changeling, literally, and that he might have been a Chechen who changed his name to be Russian to get ahead in Russia. And then he certainly has played a good deal on his affinity for various Chechen warlords. So he might be named Aslambek Dudayev. We don't know. But his uh, name is Vladislav Surkov now. Uh, he looks sort of like a malevolent Mr. Bean, if that will help anyone. And uh, I mean, more malevolent Mr. Bean, I guess I should say. And uh, he is one of those guys who had nothing ever happened, would have probably just uh, been a somewhat weird low-level bureaucrat, but when the revolution happened, he sort of saw his main chance. He's sort of zealot as, as an evil mastermind. Right, exactly. He um, began to hook up with a bunch of different uh, oligarchs and climbed the oligarch ladder all the way up into government positions, because that's what happens when you hook up with 
oligarchs is the oligarch says, go get a government job so that we get all the permits we need to loot uh, whatever sector of the economy we're in charge of. And so he winds up being uh, Yeltsin's deputy chief of staff for a bit and then sort of switches over to Putin relatively early and then, you know, stayed relatively close to Putin up until he gets a little bit demoted from chief of staff slash prime minister in charge of the economy. And then in circa 2012, it's more like, well, uh, Surkov, maybe he's got too many independent oligarchs that he's buddies with. Maybe, you know, Putin is tired of reading news articles about how Surkov is his gray cardinal. Um, but he sort of demotes him down to a valued personal advisor right. and friend. So, which so that's means, the beginning of the fall. So let's let's yeah. rewind a bit to the rewind rise. a bit. All right. So his first oligarch, his starter oligarch, uh, is Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Uh, he meets him at martial arts class, and he winds up in his orbit. And through him, he is the one who puts the first ad on Russian TV for Khodorkovsky's bank. They fall out. Uh, Surkov fails upward. And runs up running the media. And in fact, when Kordakovsky is, is arrested in 2003, it's Surkov who masterminds the propaganda coverage of his arrest. So that's, that's a classic knife in the back. Mm -hmm. He winds up as head of PR for Austin Kino, which is the Russian TV massive production studio, which in their power structure means you're in charge of the channels or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and being head of PR means he's head of it. <laughs> <laughs> in this weird org chart sort of way. And he is there at the beginning of the creation of the United Russia Party. So during his heyday is basically from 2000 to 2013. And as you point out, there's a turn at the end of this where eventually I think Putin kind of feels that he's too clever by half. Mm -hmm. And I think, think Putin also dislikes it when there's like things happen. Like in 2006, he's doing a web program where people call in and some at, someone asks Putin about Cthulhu. <laughs> have you heard this? No. And, and Putin is like, well, I do not know. We will have to exercise caution about this Cthulhu. And I think that that's eventually where it's like, well, uh, Vladislav, he is into the uh, postmodern authoritarianism, but I'm sort of into the, you know, the Ivan the Terrible authoritarianism. Sort of regular, homegrown, yeah. locally sourced authoritarianism. How about pre-modern? Let's go right, for that. Yep. But during this period is when this sort of pioneers this whole style of dizzyingly weird, entertaining propaganda that is internally contradictory and, and, and is full of the esoteric elliptony sort of uh, stuff. So he's into neuro-linguistic programming, uh, which is the... A pseudoscience of communication and mind control that's created uh, in the 70s by a couple of Americans named Richard Bandler and John uh, Grinder. He's uh, also into consumer research, so he's like the first propagandist who, well, the thing about propaganda is telling people what they want to hear. Let's poll and find out what they want to hear instead of, you know, and, and of course the poll results come back. Oh, it's just the usual, you know, hatred and and fear, that's what people like in propaganda. And if you guys are getting Madness dossier vibes off this from my old GURPS uh, horror setting, yeah, you're right. He's definitely a rogue agent of Project Sandman or possibly one of the Russians who learned the secrets from Kim Philby and has been trying to apply them to create their own domestically grown Project Sandman. So he's, he makes a great villain for, for that game as well, really for anything, yes. I would say. So he sort of thrives on paradox. He's 
promoting avant-garde theater performance art on one hand and religious fundamentalism on the other. And uh, guess which one Russia has stuck with? Well, the same thing that a lot of those avant-garde guys did stick with after they converted to hardcore Catholicism in the 1890s or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's, it's it, I mean, it's fun to see it happen simultaneously, I think, in a guy. And uh, he does have the idea to uh, sort of make Kadyrov the procurator of the Chechen Republic, which turns out to be the way to solve the Chechen problem, which is why he, you know, keeps getting his calls taken in Moscow, I think, because that's uh, that was a big win for, for Putin. And uh, one assumes that Kadyrov and uh, Surkov haven't lost each other's phone numbers. So, right? Yes, and and Surkov uh, 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 perhaps needs some pals uh, right about now. Yeah. Another prominent pal is... Alexei Weitz, who's the head of the Night Wolves political motorcycle gang. Surkov funds their concerts and events, and uh, Weitz is a uh, also into neuro-linguistic programming. So, uh, speaking of other supervillains... Well, if you're a werewolf, you need neuro-linguistic programming. I don't need to tell you that, right? Yes. And Surkov also uses television shows to mainstream a lot of conspiracy corner and Aleptony Hut uh, sort of figures... So uh, their programming uh, includes uh, people who are talking about healing energy drinks to mention something that goes elsewhere in the world and also isn't new or dream materialization or uh, there's an apocalyptic cult leader named Viserion who uh, Zirkov elevated and also uh, Gregory Grabovoy, who we talked about in episode 455, uh, also can refresh people's memories. Uh, also a piece of work. Yeah, uh, Grabovoy is basically a postmodern Kabbalist in that uh, he found a numerical substrate to all of reality. And by applying it in specific ways, you can create uh, specific outcomes. So while Grabovoy is out there telling you how to find love on Flag Day with magic numbers or or make enough money to pay for your apartment, one assumes that Vladislav Surkov's elliptony ministry is using big Grabovoy numbers to alter the course of nations and uh, deal with the uh, numeric ethiers that command each country that John D found out about. He's also buddies with Vladimir Zhirinovsky. He set him up as sort of the clown opposition that Putin used to sort of say, well, you know, I'd love to do it, but Vladimir Zhirinovsky's very influential crazy party won't let me. I guess my hands are tied. Or uh, I'm going to do it this way. We're going to do the middle path between you, Navalny, and me. And Vladimir Zhirinovsky represents the other side. And I'm going to Barack Obama this situation and just do what I want by inventing um, a bad guy. Right. And and he would now be uh, not just the lamented, but now the late Zhirinovsky. The late lamented. Uh, founder, father of the Elipton, by the way, we should mention. Yes. I don't know if we needed a whole hut. To, to mourn the passing of this horrible clown buffoon, but there's a tiny little icon of him in the back corner of the Elliptony hut, probably being, you know, chewed on by Bigfoot, even as we speak. Right. So as we said, uh, Putin sort of, uh, in about 2013, for, for whatever range of reasons, says, well, my image is already kind of fixed now. That's great. This guy is getting too much attention. Also, I'm tired of all the weird part. I just want to go to regular authoritarianism. That's more fun for me. He demotes him. And then right away, there's the uh, 2014 Ukraine invasion, and he brings him back to manage the media approach on on that. And also possibly to manage the FSB or GRU kill teams that shot an awful lot of Ukrainian politicians and uh, protesters in 2014. And 
Vladislav Surkov, surprise, surprise, is in Kiev during the Euromaidan protests. And everyone has said, that's odd that you would be there. And he said, no, no, I had another thing I was doing. It was just a coincidence. <laughs> there was a fun thing in 2014 because he was part of that invasion. He was one of the people given personal sanctions by the government of the United States. And his response was, the only things that interest me in the United States are Tupac Shakur, Allen Ginsberg, and Jackson Pollock. And I mean, there's those lists of, you know, what's a danger sign in your, in your, uh, in your date's house. This may be a danger sign if your date is also a Russian occult oligarchic mastermind politico. Yes. Yeah, he loved to, to flaunt his hipster connections. So he's a big hip hop fan. He's a songwriter. He's a lyricist whose uh, songs have been recorded. He's like the worst imaginable Batman. Yes. <laughs> and, and it also looks like he's the uh, pseudonymous author. And by pseudonym, it's a slightly changed version of his wife's name of a bunch of satirical novels, including one called Almost Zero. So that's the the ultimate wink, right? Is that you're writing a satire and you are the thing being uh, satirized. Gary Lockman, in his book uh, Dark Star Rising, which devotes some space to Surkoff, attributes to him without a lot of connection, but it's, you, you know, I'll allow it, says <laughs> that he may be responsible for the rash of Darth Vader's who ran for local elections in Ukraine the, the year uh, after that invasion. And so that that's, you know, the typical rat organizing uh, sort of thing. And it, it's, a, it's a, we don't know if he did it. It's the kind of thing he would do. So in 2020, he is either outright fired by Putin. So he's demoted to aid in 2013. 2020, he's either fired or he quits, depending on who you ask. And just now, in April, Ken, he got arrested. Because... Oh. Now, you know that Putin and his, and his uh, team don't need an actual crime uh, to arrest people, and some of the actual crimes are like offending the military and so forth, but the crime that he's alleged to have committed is uh, taking all of the money for the operation to create a support structure for Russia in the Donbass, basically to build out a network. Apparently, he might have just stolen it. He yeah. just kept it. And there's there's certainly been a lot of that going around where uh, there were all sorts of people who were reporting to Putin that they were building him a network in Ukraine, which would allow him to take over the country in 48 hours. And it turned out, nope, they just stole it. Just like, you know, you look at these crates of uh, Russian ammo and they've been left out in the rain for years. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, the military, they got money to build ammo storage facilities. But you know what? They just stole that money. Yep. They left the ammo out in the rain. Well, I'm, I, on a side note, Robin, I'm very glad the CIA never steals a big pile of money unaccountably. Yeah. Just good for them. Not yes. stealing giant piles of money that we give them to arrange things in the other in the outer world that somehow never happen the way they predict. Anyway, but yeah, Surkov right now languishing endurance vile. I don't know if he's arrested in mean prison or if he's just, I think it's, it says that he's just locked in his house as far as we know it's house he's just in stately surkov manor somewhere but also Um, we're recording this 10 days before he yeah so so something terrible literally anything could happen to this guy he could be beheaded in red square or he could you know turn up in lisbon demanding you know uh sanctuary for in exchange for his memoirs who can say right because uh there's been a lot of work for putin's successor we never know yeah right he he could be working out who putin's successor is i presume that Kadyrov maybe be the reason that it's the difference between house arrest and Lubyanka arrest. If I had to guess, that would be maybe my guess. 
But uh, either way, we probably haven't seen the last of this exciting fellow. I, I think he sort of, you know, he games himself. He becomes a superb uh, omni villain, given that he's connected to everything from mind control to werewolves to abstract expressionism. Plus, of course, Russian war crimes. So is it an a embarrassment of riches situation? What do we do with Vladislav Surkov? Obviously, he could be, you know, his energy drinks could have been cover for vampire research. If you want a straight up Knights Black Agent situation, he allowed Putin to hear the name Cthulhu. So there's your Delta Green. What else have we got, Robin? Well, as I said, he's got to be the world's leading esoterrorist. Mm-hmm. You pointed out that he's a Madness dossier character as well. So I think basically the, one of the many problems with the Bond franchise is they haven't yet thinly veiled him mm-hmm. as a villain. He should absolutely be the, the head of the new Spectre when someone takes over for Daniel Craig. Right. You know, he's just any... Or new Smirsh, even, since we can have Russians as villains for the next 20 years. Yeah. So yeah. anything from straight-up spy thriller to anything weird or uh, elliptonic, there's there's too many connections to use, too many plot hooks. And I guess uh, once you have too many plot hooks, that's basically the same thing as having... One giant plot hook of the sort that tugs us off stage and leads us into another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Get your heroic self and all your sidekicks to keep us going alongside such beloved Patreon backers as John Bisco, John W.S. Marvin, Carl McKee, Darren Dumay, and Robert Dean. The statues of the gods, the papyrus scrolls we decipher, the sense of the numinous we feel when we look at every grove and spring welcome us into the mythology hut and our papyrus now is a vellum it's a sheepskin probably our uh, groves and springs are still there in good fashion but also there's a big empty bay at the uh, tippy tip of Brittany. and the gods well they're good old christian gods robin you know like uh, saint gwenely of Brittany and god and maybe the devil and also there's a mermaid Yep, beloved Patreon backer Toonspew has requested that the Mythology Hut investigate Ys. He requests, of cha- given Chambers Demoiselle Dees, what is Ys? Where did it come from? Where did it go? And where would it fit best into the Yellow King 4 setting game structure? Toonspew, 
being no fool as to how to get us to answer a question. Right. And so where it fits is it's it's in the Paris book. So, mm-hmm. so that's where I would start out. So, yes, uh, this is uh, one of the great myths of Brittany. Brittany, of course, is the spooky province of France. So we've talked about uh, the mythology and folklore of uh, Brittany before, and it's was of great interest to Chambers and therefore uh, is sort of, you know, on the outer ring adjacent to the Yellow King stories and is the perfect thing that if your art students go on a little bit of a, a day trip up to that haunted, sea-swept land, uh, they may look out into the ocean and then with their heightened Carcosan senses see the city rising from the water because it's sort of uh, a precursor to Royla as well, right? Yeah. Uh, so this is... It's in the Bay of Douarnenez. It's about 50 kilometers northeast of Pont-Aven. And basically, it's a, it's a city that sinks beneath the sea. It's either on an island or it's sort of ringed by a basin that catches incoming waves, protects it from flooding one way or the other. And it has a virtuous early Christian prince. His name is Gradlon. But Gradlon is a bit too much of a doting father. And he fails to see the evil of his daughter, the sorceress Dehat. And uh, she sends it up in a way that also leads us to uh, think of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, the, and uh, the sins get more elaborate the later in time people are writing them up. <laughs> y- yes. Uh, well, you know, you, we develop more sins along the way. And, yep. you know, that's the, the yeah, as, as they develop new sins in the 19th century, they made sure to attribute them all to Dehut. Right. And so either she provokes the wrath of God or arguably she accidentally or on purpose orden- opens the floodgates in the version of this that has floodgates. In one story version, she's sneaking her lover into the city. Her lover is either Satan or a mysterious red knight in the uh, fun versions of the story. Right. And uh, Gradlon uh, flees uh, the sinking city on his horse, leaving open the question, wait a minute, virtuous Christian prince, aren't you like saving your populace? But no, he's... Nope, they were doomed. They were so doomed. So he's either uh, tries and fails to save Dehut, or in other versions, he righteously kicks her into the waves so that she can drown, which again, I'm not sure about this Gradline character at all. Yeah. I think this is definitely crying out for a revisionist version. But in any way, this, in the Yellow King context, uh, where the entry of Carcosan energy into the world in 1895 can either retroactively create this myth and make it real, or you can argue that Carcosan energy has been high in the world before, and perhaps there was an evil uh, city of the Pallid King uh, off the coast that sank the last time the gates got closed and that this story is a garbled version of that. And, uh, you know, maybe Dehat was Casilda or, or Camilla or, or possibly both, which suggests why the stories are somewhat contradictory. The other reason the stories are somewhat contradictory is that they come from the magic world of Celtic mythology, where there's no story so good that you can't retell it and make it better. Gradlon, I guess, to start with, Is just means low in Breton. So that's the, you know, it's, it's below the level of the waves. It's the low city, Care East. And it's ruled by King Gradlon Muer, uh, in the, in the version of the myth. Uh, Gradlon probably actually existed. He's like a slightly more reliably existing King Arthur. He's first mentioned in the ninth century, but he's mentioned in a, a proper chronicle, not a, uh, crazy imaginary story. He's the guy that uh, unified Brittany around the uh, the county of Cornwall. That is almost certainly not how it's pronounced, but that's how we're going to say it here. And it drowned. So what do they know? He becomes a medieval culture hero as uh, people are uh, coming up with the Arthur stories. So he's got his own lay called Graylant, 
And in this one, he meets a fairy mistress and incurs the wrath of the, of the High King of Brittany by, um, uh, saying that his fairy mistress is hotter than the queen. And after a bit of a contretemps, she shows up and proves, yep, he was right. But as a result of that, he has to leave the court. So, uh, they're riding across a river. And as they ride across the river, he's, he's worried that he's going to drown, but she uh, comes back and saves him at leaving his horse on the far bank. And Grayland vanishes. He goes off into ferry to be with his, his fairy mistress and his horse still haunts that very spring, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Gradlon is, you know, he's too good a character to leave out. So East is first mentioned in Pierre Labode's Chroniques at Histoires de Bretons in 1480, thereabouts. And it's mentioned as ruled by Gradlon and whether that means that there was always a connection between Gradlon and East or it was, well, he's the king. It's a mythic Britain thing. He must have been in charge. Who can say? Uh, Dahot shows up in, uh, Albert Legrand's uh, Life of the Saints of Brittany and Armorica in 1637. I've decided to stop doing French. That's by a guy named Albert Legrand, as I say. And that's sort of the, the kernel of the myth. But the myth itself has reflections, if you are familiar with various uh, Celtic myths. In Wales, there's a similarly sunken city called Cantraire Gwaelod and another one called Lees Helig. Both of those go back to before 1250. Cantraire Gwaelod appears in the Black Book of Carmarthen, and once more, it's a, a young lady who gets clumsy and, oops, drowns Cantraire Gwaelod. In Ireland, there's a whole genre of poems called Tamamans, which are about a lake bursting forth and drowning something. Those go back to the 11th century. Lufnich is in the uh, Battle of Moitura as a place where... um uh, Ica, you know, has a magic horse. Again, there's a magic horse. The magic horse makes a spring happen. The spring keeps bubbling up. So, uh, Ica puts a, a rock on it and he tells his girlfriend, Liban, watch the rock. Don't forget to replace it because that spring's going to bubble it off. And one day, Liban doesn't bother to do it. And sure enough, the lake appears. Liban turns into a fish and swims away. And that is the Irish version of this same story. Dehut is in some versions considered the daughter of Gradlon's magical wife, who might have been a mermaid, or she might have just been a sort of uh, Morgan Le Fay type character. But that may be where Dehut gets her sorceress evil nature, is because Gradlon is, you know, he, he's got a he's got a type. Is I guess what I'm saying. Right? Could be a illegitimate daughter with the uh, with the the hotter fairy mistress. That's another possibility. Exactly. If you like 19th century opera, uh, Edward Lalo's opera, The King of East, covers this myth. It's from 1888. It's not the most memorable 19th century opera, but you can uh, dial it up on uh, Spotify. And so, as I said, the most obvious thing uh, to do with it in uh, the Yellow King RPG is to have the Paris characters go to Brittany and uh, see it. It might rise through the waves, and that could be the sort of apocalyptic thing that they need to sink it again because it's going to, you know, there's suddenly fishmen coming onto shore. Can't have that. Or you could also, whether or not you do that in the first place, you could then echo it through the other settings. Having a mysterious city full of fishmen come up in the middle of the Continental War and the wars could also be bad news. And in that case, you might 
you know, send bombers overhead to bomb it back beneath the waves. Or you might be doing like a dam busters adventure where you have to bomb the dam and then that dam will drown a city and maybe make a bunch of fishmen. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to make a bunch of fishmen. That seems bad. Uh, it's tough to sort of literally do it in Aftermath, but I think what you could establish is that there's an underwater hideout where some of the members of the Castain regime are, are hiding out or you go down to explore sort of an evil Jacques Cousteau installation on on the ocean bed off the Atlantic and it's called East or called the Day Hut or something. And then in uh, This Is Normal Now, you could discover that there's an archaeological expedition to uh, bring up weird ruins from the bottom uh, of the bay. And uh, you could, uh, by that time, suspect that those ruins should not come up because Fishman will come back. Or you could, if you want it to be a, a longer term uh, element of the story, it could be that you've got New Orleans or Miami or some other low-lying city that is also famous for its uh, Dahoot-like behavior, and global warming is causing floods, and the global warming is causing bigger floods even than little Greta Thunberg thought, and are the floods being brought by, you know, Carcosa getting closer to Earth and weird gravities? Is it uh, some other sort of equality? And is it your job to find the Dahut and uh, take her away? And it turns out, of course, she's, as you say, Camilla or Casilda sitting there uh, encouraging specifically Carcosan kinds of sin that make only Miami or New Orleans flood and not all of us uh, coastlines everywhere yet. Well, uh, since we've uh, got Camilla and Casilda back in there again, uh, we've got lots of uh, plot hooks for that. I think we can safely move out of the realm of mythology and into the realm of the occult on the other side of this commercial message. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivey, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. It's time once more to wend our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. We're going to pause on the landing, going to wave to the portrait of the magical fire salamander, and he's going to say, hey, I don't think I was even part of this back in episode uh, 154 when you last talked about Roger Bacon. And now that the salamander has given it away, I guess we can just go right in and ask the consulting occultist, 
here's one of the basic key important figures of, uh, of not just the English occult, but the occult in general. So we need a version of this on a file that we actually have hit it consulting occultist. All right. Roger Bacon, I think maybe was a bigger thing when I was a kid uh, because we were all very excited that he might've invented gunpowder and the scientific method. And uh, there was still that sort of old anti-clerical history of science energy going on. He's less of a thing now, I believe, but he's still great. He was named Dr. Mirabilis, sadly, after he died. Uh, there's a terrific James Blish novel about his life that I recommend because I just said James Blish novel. But anyway, in our history, in regular history, Roger Bacon was born around 1215 in Ilchester in Somerset. He studied at Oxford, may have studied under the theologian Robert Grosstest. Grosstest is one of the early Aristotelians who realized that one of the many ways that God is great is he made cool natural laws for us to figure out. What a great guy. And so Robert Grosstest wrote theological treatises on tides, math, optics, and the experimental method as derived from Aristotle. And Grosstest probably is the guy who had the biggest influence on Roger Bacon, who was certainly very, very smart and was absolutely hard to get along with, I think. Anyway, he goes off to Paris in 1237 to teach at the University of Paris. On the faculty with him is the magus and proto-alchemist Albertus Magnus, and the future Pope John the Twenty-First, who you may remember from our segment on the various Pope Johns, died when his medical laboratory fell in on him as Pope. So this is a, a scientifically-minded crowd, at the University of Paris. This is the sort of nerve center of Aristotelianism as it's uh, flowing through the high scholastic era. This is where he is reputed to have made a brazen head. And the brazen head predicted the future or it told the truth or it did other magic things. By brazen, it means cast in bronze, not yes. just that it was a sort of fearless truth teller that would love Twitter. N not, not that it was cool and camp and, and fun. No, it yeah. was, yeah, it was, it was made of bronze. And that's the sort of era of his adventure life, I guess, if you're looking for, you know, role playing tie ins. So this is when he's, you know, a, a CW sort of Roger Bacon running around uh, as a hot youth in Paris. Then he becomes a Franciscan friar in 1256. And uh, all of that running around has to stop. He's buddies with uh, a guy named Guy of Fulks, who is influential with the Franciscans, helps him get around the Franciscan restrictions on writing. You're not supposed to write anything that isn't pious or theological if you're a Franciscan. Raising the question of why did Roger Bacon become a Franciscan, of all people, but apparently that was, he, he, he liked his theology plain and simple, I guess. Well, he knew a Pope and he knew a future Pope is, yep. is why he thought he could get around that. Yeah, exactly. So his buddy Guy of Folks becomes Pope Clement IV and gives him a specific papal order to just um, write down all of science. That would be great. Then we could have that. And so Roger Bacon says, you got it, uh, spends a couple of years working on a book called the Opus Magus, and then, you know, writes sort of subsidiary versions of it. He has a version called the Opus Minor, which is the, the little version, in case you don't want to read all half million words of the Opus Magus. Right. And, and then and that's Magus with a J, meaning the, the big work, not the big work. Magus yeah. with a G, meaning magical. Right, yeah. And he writes works on astronomy and astrology. He's very interested in, you know, those aspects of, uh, of, of science at the time and whether or not they have God's wisdom in them. He summarizes the works of magic in a book called, uh, the secret workings of art and nature. 
He may have written other alchemical texts. Lots of people said later alchemical texts were by him. They probably weren't. He translates a bunch of Aristotle or edits a bunch of Aristotelian translations, including works that were not actually by Aristotle, the Secretum Secretorum, which is another magic book. But his big vibe, the thing that he says in all of his books, whether he's describing how to make a magnifying glass or how to make gunpowder, he says theories supplied by reason should be verified by sensory data, aided by instruments, and corroborated by trustworthy witnesses. And as I say, later historiography used to say, oh, what a rara avis, an Isaac Newton born too early. But as you study the actual history of science, no, he's just the best of the Aristotelians. Um, there's a whole intellectual movement that creates this, that uh, causes the rise of an awful lot of, of medieval technology and science. And he's just the, the leading light of it. He's the one with the license to write it down. He also is the one with specific orders from the Pope to keep writing science. Sadly, Pope Clement IV dies in 1268, and the Franciscan brothers are kind of questioning all this alchemy and stuff. And especially they question the astrology because you're not supposed to teach that astrology predicts the future. That's God's job, not astrology's job. And so there's a lot of back and forth there. He may or may not have been imprisoned by the Franciscans, but also he got very involved in Franciscan politics, especially when the Franciscan order broke into the half that said, we should stay poor, like St. Francis said, and the half that said, but look at all the money. And he was on Team Poor Like St. Francis, which makes him no friends, right. especially amongst influential Franciscans. Makes him readily imprisonable. But eventually, it, it all sort of works out. He goes back to Oxford. He lives at the Franciscan house there, spends his life in works of uh, piety, minor sciencing, and he writes up a compendium, sort of a how to teach theology to go with his how to teach science book, and finishes that in 1292. And that's roughly when he dies because by then he's in his 80s and is probably, you know, it's medieval times. So even even Roger Bacon, even one who was buddies with magic medical Pope John the 21st, he can't live forever that we know of and uh, kicks off. And his uh, legacy, as, as I say, he gets super, super elevated by the 19th century historians of science. He, he's still very hip science fiction writers of a certain age love Roger Bacon. Now he's seen as uh, an important Aristotelian and maybe the smartest of them, but certainly not, you know, a changeling or a, or a lone genius. And because he's so emphatic about experiment, he deprecates the role of pure math. And so many people say, well, you know, science is also about the math and you don't be Newton if you don't be doing the math. So that's our boy, Roger Bacon, uh, brazen heads, astrology, astronomy, secret Aristotle. He gives so much of himself, I say. Right. So as I'm sure we said in 154, <laughs> the obvious plot hook is, is the talking head uh -huh. because that can show up in any era that uh, allows magic or weirdness or could even be like a, you know, a robot head. Uh, you can have a time traveler have uh, could be the head of a, a time traveling robot. You never know. But this seems like the perfect MacGuffin for people to be uh, chasing and uh, uh, make the life of uh, Roger Bacon, which, as you suggest, after some earlier uh, sort of handsoming around, was mostly a sedentary life of, of writing stuff down. Yep. The other obvious choice is the, the secret book of uh, mm -hmm. uh, Roger Bacon, which uh, covers 
the you know the, the magic stuff is really in in the secret book that nobody has and i'm sure it's all very experimental and measured uh, magic so it could be uh, he could be the founder of you know the rationalist uh, magical school in your modern day magic campaign so he could be the the one who's uh, maybe there's not a lot of math in the spells but there's a lot of empirical data and stuff and it, it uses early scientific instruments as your magical or alchemical uh, devices and certainly if the heroes are chasing some sort of alchemical potion or equipment or something, it, you could attribute it to uh, him as well. He's been, I don't know if credited is the word, blamed for the Voynich manuscript. People used to think that that was Roger Bacon writing it in his copious free time. That probably is not the case. But again, can't rule things out. I feel like he probably would have drawn fewer fat ladies taking baths. It's very poetic that he both attributed works to other people that were not theirs, like his non-Aristotle translations, and that others then attributed other works to him. It seems like a beautiful bit of symmetry there. Yeah, he was he was actually uh, trying to found linguistics amongst the other side hobbies that he had because he was so mad at how terrible everyone's Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic were when they were reading the Bible. And there's a line that he says that uh, there is one grammar, but all languages depart from it. And if you've got, you know, sort of a magical language situation going on, uh, words of power, that again can be a, a Roger Bacon insight. But that approach to linguistics is, I think, evidence that he doesn't have the same sort of notion of, of textual criticism that, that we have now. That um, for him, it's like, the, the value of the book is the truth of the book. It's not about necessarily, you know, the, the provenance of the book. And so that may be why he falls for things like the secretum secretorum, uh, because he doesn't really care. He's like, well, this has got valuable scientific knowledge in it. So it's probably by Aristotle. He was the smartest man in the world. That makes sense. Story checks out. Moving on. Well, I think a translation of something that wasn't by the person who seemed to have been translated, but still had value, I think is a perfect note on which to end this half redo of a seven-year-old uh, episode. So there you go. There's your Roger Bacon again. And this should last you another seven years until perhaps, was it the brazen head that made the file disappear, Kent, do you think? It could have been. Well, we thwarted it. And it'll right. take it, I'm sure, another seven years to work up the magic to remove this from our servers. And until then, we're going to come back next week with a, an episode that uh, I think will all be totally original topics unlike, yet also very much like, the topics we usually cover. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Colgren Press. Ask Fagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Be a Dr. Mirabilis by joining such other Dr. Mirabiluses as... Chris Lydon. Patrick Joint. Andrew Cowie. Scott Jones. And Mark Galliotti. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate avian brigandage with our latest design, Stormy Petrols of Crime. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>